This podcast is for educational purposes and not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment for either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating if you are a practitioner. Please consult with your own physician for any medical or psychiatric issues that you may be having. Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic adult and child psychiatrist. In this episode, I'll be talking about schizophrenia, beyond disappointing treatment options, and I'll discuss the Walsh Research Institute biotypes, assessment, and nutrient-based therapies that those of us trained through the Walsh Research Institute use to treat individuals with schizophrenia. So I'd like to start with a quote by John Forbes Nash, Jr. If things are not so good, you maybe want to imagine something better. You might know John Nash, Jr. as the brilliant mathematician portrayed by Russell Crowe in the movie A Beautiful Mind. The movie, though not faithful to Nash's actual story, does effectively show his spiral into psychosis and severe chronic mental illness. Schizophrenia affects 1 in 300 people, or 24 million people worldwide, so that would be 2.6 million here in the U.S. It remains the most treatment-resistant psychiatric condition. In this episode, using Nash's story as a reference point, I'll discuss theories attempting to explain schizophrenia and how a belief that all people with schizophrenia have the same biochemical disorder is contributing to a lack of effective treatment and problematic side effects for many. I'll discuss research from the Walsh Research Institute, which has identified three biotypes with different biochemical needs. I'll talk about how those of us trained by the Walsh Research Institute assess and treat schizophrenia. And lastly, I'll talk about the truth about John Nash's story that was not shared in the movie. Most with schizophrenia are not brilliant mathematicians who become Nobel laureates the way John Nash did. Many are homeless. I use Nash's story because it is known by many and because he appears to have a form of schizophrenia along with up to 70% with this illness that current psychiatric medications do not appear to adequately target. Here are my 10 thoughts on schizophrenia. Number one, diagnostic criteria. This will be a summary of what comes from the Psychiatric Diagnostic Manual. And it's that the person must have two of the following symptoms. And one of these needs to be in the top three, essentially. So the first is delusions, believing something despite evidence to the contrary. So this is when someone has a belief that's not based in reality. The other Potential symptom would be hallucinations, hearing, seeing, or feeling things that are not there. The third type of symptom is disorganized speech, which is reflective of disorganized thoughts. The fourth symptom one might have is disorganized or catatonic behavior or an inability to move normally. And then lastly, there can be negative symptoms, and these include things like blunted emotional expression, a decrease in the quantity of words spoken, decrease in motivation, and the ability to experience pleasure. 
So generally, these symptoms are broken down into both positive symptoms. So this would be hallucinations, delusions, and disorganized speech and behavior, and negative symptoms, which are more sort of a turning down of someone's expressiveness and emotion. Number two is the course of illness. Whether someone has more delusions or more hallucinations or a mix, the course of illness typically involves relative normalcy prior to the onset of psychotic symptoms, cognitive deficits, and loss of social skills. Nash's onset of illness around the age of 30 was relatively late. The average onset for men is late teens to early 20s, and for women, late 20s and early 30s. Men tend to have more severe symptoms, and the sex difference seems to be and has been attributed to the protective effects of estrogen. Number three, current theories. All of the theories are based on the premise that all the 24 million with schizophrenia worldwide, have the same biochemical condition. First, there's the genetic hypothesis, and it is well understood that schizophrenia often runs in families, but not in the way that can be predicted. The second hypothesis, which really has been the prevailing theory guiding the development of medications, has been the dopamine hypothesis. This comes out of the 1950s discovery of chlorpromazine, also called Thorazine, a medication that blocks some dopamine receptors in the brain. While many with schizophrenia benefited, especially with a decrease in symptoms such as hallucinations and delusions, their negative symptoms and cognitive symptoms did not necessarily improve, and some individuals developed persistent movement disorders. These same challenges persist even with newer, though better, antipsychotic medications. Relative to its predecessors, clozapine has little impact on dopamine activity. So this was a medication that there was a lot of hope for. But for its dangerous potential side effects, which include low white cell count, which requires very close monitoring, it would probably be used more for treatment-resistant schizophrenia, although even it has a lot of treatment resistance, meaning people don't all necessarily respond to it. The third theory is the glutamate hypothesis. Basically, there is low activity at the NMDA receptor. And I'll talk about the NMDA receptor more in a future newsletter. It's quite a big player that's emerging in research in a number of areas when it comes to mental health. Another theory is the neurodevelopmental disorder theory. And this basically suggests that when someone has schizophrenia, that this is somewhat predetermined when they're conceived, and that the onset of the illness doesn't occur until a particular stage of their maturation. So part of our maturation involves the normal elimination of certain connections between nerves during adolescence. So this theory suggests that in schizophrenia, this process is occurring excessively. And so this would explain sort of why the onset is when it is. Fitting with this theory is a higher rate of mutation of the C4 gene. So this is a mutation that can result in too much C4. 
And C4 is a protein considered a complement, but this particular protein is important in synaptic pruning. So you can kind of imagine it as kind of an overzealous gardener with pruning shears. It's really seemingly causing too much of this removal of particular neuronal connections. I've talked about in a recent newsletter and will be in an upcoming podcast episode, um, this is one of the genes in the RCCX gene complex. Number four, the current state of treatment of schizophrenia. So I pulled a quote from the Lancet Journal. So this is one of the leading medical journals, and this was in their editorial last month, introducing an initiative to bring more attention to the treatment of those with severe mental illness. So to quote, although tolerability has improved with newer antipsychotics, they are associated with extensive side effects, especially extrapyramidal side effects from blocking dopamine. That was the movement disorders I referenced earlier. Long-term metabolic effects, such as an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, are also possible, and regular drug monitoring is often required. Such factors contribute towards underprescribing of antipsychotics by clinicians and poor adherence by patients. They go on later to say, why then have treatment options not diversified? So in the newsletter, I link to these different references uh, for those who want to read more deeply. But I would say that in the meantime, so this sort of comes out of the conventional perspective, but in the meantime, Dr. William Walsh and the Walsh Research Institute continue to do research and train doctors around the world who think very differently about schizophrenia. Number five, the Walsh theory of schizophrenia. Over a span of 40 years, the Walsh Research Institute looked at nutrient levels in over 30,000 people. Out of this data came a great deal of information about biochemical factors in those with brain symptoms. From this emerged three major biotypes of schizophrenia. Now, we also have biotypes for ADHD and biotypes for depression, but here I'm focusing on the data that comes for schizophrenia. So this is a big deal because if you are putting three biochemically different groups of people together and trying to treat them all with the same types of medication, you will get what we have seen over the last 70 years. To oversimplify Dr. Walsh's theory, most with schizophrenia come into the world with, number one, a vulnerability to epigenetic errors that can alter genetic expression. And number two, a vulnerability to high oxidative stress. So this is when our inherent protective antioxidant system is overwhelmed by something such as toxicity, trauma, inflammation, or other factors. Both of these vulnerabilities, so this vulnerability to epigenetic changes and a vulnerability to high oxidative stress, in combination with a severe emotional or physiologic stress seemingly leads to overwhelming oxidative stress causing an alteration in gene expression and the onset of illness. These vulnerabilities, for the most part, appear to be due to methylation imbalances. 
So if you've followed these episodes or these newsletters, you know that methylation imbalances are exceedingly common in those with brain-related symptoms. Number six, the three Walsh biotypes of schizophrenia. The first is overmethylation type, and this is considered a sensory disorder marked by auditory, tactile, or visual hallucinations. These individuals will also share other symptoms with those who are overmethylated and who do not have schizophrenia. So that's something that I will link to checklist on my website for those who are interested in seeing what the symptoms, the general symptoms of overmethylation are. But for this biotype of schizophrenia, there are the predominant symptom is hallucinations. So the biochemical imbalance here appears to be folate deficiency, high methyl resulting in high dopamine activity. And this is fitting with the dopamine hypothesis. So remember, the medications being used today and really since the 50s have been blocking dopamine receptors. The other part of this biochemical imbalance is high norepinephrine. So this is like adrenaline. So what's fascinating and quite um, shocking, in fact, is that this was once the most common type of schizophrenia at 42%. So this was from the data from 1960 to 1980, and now is the least common at 8%. And this shift was discovered in 2018. And so you can see that this is a problem since medications that were largely designed around this group that was really the largest group is now the smallest group. Um, Just as an aside, this group does have a decrease in an MDA receptor activity, also fitting with the glutamate hypothesis. So the next biotype, however, is quite different, and this is the undermethylated biotype. I suspect John Nash was undermethylated. Those of us who are undermethylated tend to gravitate towards detail-oriented type of work, and so that would be engineers, mathematicians, accountants. People don't have to be in one of those fields to be under-methylated, but when someone is one of, in one of those fields, that would raise suspicion for that, and not everyone that has under-methylation necessarily has brain-related symptoms. But when it comes to the under-methylation type of schizophrenia, this, instead of being considered a sensory disorder, as is the case with overmethylation, this is considered a thought disorder. And the prominent symptoms include delusions, and in some cases, catatonia. These individuals, again, will share symptoms with others who are undermethylated and who do not have schizophrenia. So the biochemical imbalance here is typically low methyl, high folate, resulting in low dopamine activity and low serotonin activity. And recognize that this is not fitting with the dopamine hypothesis and with current psychiatric medications, which further lower dopamine activity. So that doesn't mean necessarily that antipsychotics don't provide some benefit from other mechanisms, including antihistaminic effects. And so these effects of antipsychotic medications could cause some calming, but for some people they could cause sedation, which 
could be advantageous at, at, at times if someone's severely agitated, but not if someone is trying to get through their day. Regarding the NMDA receptor, this instead of low activity, as the conventional theory suggests, in this case, it's actually increased activity at the NMDA receptor. So undermethylation is now the most common type of schizophrenia, according to the Walsh Research Institute, at 70%. And from the 60s to 80s, it was 28%. In 2018, Walsh Research Institute, again, identified this big shift in the methylation biotypes for schizophrenia. Undermethylation does appear to be increasing in our society over the last 30 years. There's thoughts on this, which I hope to explore in a future newsletter. But just know that undermethylation is becoming more common, and that is especially important for those with schizophrenia, who appear to be now in the largest biotype, who medications are not adequately treating. And again, it doesn't mean that there's not some benefit, and this is not to suggest anyone go off their medication, and I'll elaborate more on that. So regarding John Nash, again, he was a mathematician, which points to undermethylation and he, his delusions appeared to be his most prominent symptom. And like many, he may also have had elevated pyrroles, which is the third biotype. And the predominant symptoms here are auditory hallucinations and delusions. So we'll see more of a mixed picture. There can also be rapid mood swings, high anxiety, and we'll see excessive pyrroles in the urine. So the biochemical imbalance here includes high pyrroles causing zinc and B6 depletion because pyrroles leave through the urine and they take zinc and B6. Both of these nutrients impact neurotransmitter functioning and can contribute to low GABA activity and further impacts on the NMDA receptor. Currently, 15% of those with schizophrenia appear to have this pyrrole type. But again, those with under or over methylation can have elevated pyrroles as well. Number seven, diagnosis of Walsh biotypes. This includes assessing symptoms, traits, and lab data. Because most psychiatric medications have antihistamine effects, the whole blood histamine, which we typically use to assess methylation, can be very unreliable. Instead, we will use a methylation profile. The lab that we typically use is doctor's data. Pyrrol testing involves a simple urine test, and other important blood tests include plasma zinc, serum copper, and ceruloplasmin. We interpret results using optimal ranges based on the Walsh data, which is different from the typical lab ranges. Number eight, Walsh nutrient protocols. Based on the lab data, the biotype, and other factors such as age, weight, and health conditions, a nutrient protocol, so this is a combination of specific supplements targeting deficiencies and methylation, is put together. Such a protocol can be given with psychiatric medications. In my own practice, I would not start someone with severe symptoms on a protocol until they are relatively stabilized, often with the help of medication, before seeing me for this type of treatment. If someone's in a relatively stable place, 
and working closely with a prescribing psychiatrist, then I certainly would offer this type of treatment. So decreasing medication is generally not recommended until someone is on the protocol for at least three to four months. Many, if not most, are on more than one medication. So once someone is starting to benefit from the protocol, their prescribing doctor is usually more confident about gradually starting to lower one medication at a time and in a stepwise fashion. Number nine, my clinical experience, because of the severity of this illness, improvements can be life-changing, making treating schizophrenia one of the most satisfying conditions to treat using the Walsh approaches. Identifying and addressing the sources of high oxidative stress, however, are often necessary in combination with the protocols. So the Walsh Research Institute did not, I would say, dive deeply into those sources. So for some people, it could be metal toxicity, which they did look at. But for many, in my experience, mold toxicity is one of the drivers of that high oxidative stress. And I find that treatment of that, which goes beyond the nutrient protocol, can be especially important for those not just with brain symptoms, but especially those with severe mental illness, including schizophrenia. Number 10, a beautiful mind. In real life, John Nash stopped taking his psychiatric medications. The storyline in the movie has him achieving a degree of stability from medication. Apparently, this significant change was made out of concern that the true story might encourage others to stop their medication. I wouldn't want to promote people going off their medication either. John Nash stopped his medication because he felt they blunted his intellect. And like many with schizophrenia, he didn't like how they made him feel. The movie's silencing of his full experience avoided the problematic reality of psychiatry. That when it comes to schizophrenia, there are very poor choices. Nash was able to eventually return to a degree of work, and though it seems his delusions still occurred, he developed insight into them, meaning that he had the ability to think about his thinking. This is not possible for many when not on medication. So as John Nash said, if things are not good, you maybe want to imagine something better. Though I don't think he was talking about the state of psychiatric medications when he said that, I do think and find that Dr. Walsh's theory, backed with extensive data, heeds that call and has imagined something better. Thank you for your interest. I hope this helped you have a deeper understanding of schizophrenia, the experience of schizophrenia, and the hope many of us have for better treatments moving forward and more opportunity for people to have access to the important work that's come out of the Walsh Research Institute. If you are interested in receiving these newsletters or episodes directly into your mailbox each week, please consider subscribing at CourtneySnyderMD.com or on Substack. If you are interested in taking a deeper dive into some of the aspects of my psychiatric practice and some of the topics that I write about here, please consider becoming a paid subscriber, which is also available on Substack. 
Until next time, take care. Bye-bye.